0: Tara Lake and this is the Tara Lake Show. And my, what a year it's been. Much of it seems almost surreal. And no matter where your gaze was, on the economy, the environment, the media and entertainment, or the political drama of Washington, D.C. and the world, it's likely we've never seen a year like this one. There's no sign of a slowdown, so I figure we might as well keep talking. A year ago this month, we kicked off this project with the Barack Obama Block Party, I'm returning this year for what I hope will be more frequent periodic dispatches. I hope you'll join me in 2010. At this time of year, a lot of us are wrapping up our holiday season, Thanksgiving or Thankstaking with respect to our indigenous brothers and sisters, along with other yearly milestones such as Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, and New Year's Day. Give us the opportunity to reflect on the year behind us, and provide us with another chance to reconnect to those in our families or broader communities and our cultural institutions. Perhaps more than at any other time of the year, this season gives us just one more opportunity to evaluate and meet the needs in our own communities and to practice a sense of collective responsibility. My guests on this month's Tara Lake Show have each in their own way done just that, exemplifying the spirit of giving sharing, and connecting in 2009.
1: Chestnuts roasting on an open file Jack
2: Frost nipping
3: at your nose Yuletide carols being sung
1: by a choir And folks dressed up like... Samara
0: Rivers is visual arts coordinator at San Francisco's African American Art and Culture Complex. She's also the owner of 29 and Holding, an event services company. Samara also has a few other things on her plate, but before I got to all of that, along with her personal message to the president, I wanted to chat about a passion that holds an important place for so many of us during this time of year. Do-it-yourself family genealogy. Samara Rivers. Hi, how are you? Hi. I'm doing great. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Tara Lake Show. Thank you for having me. So one of the reasons that I contacted you, in addition to all the things that you have going on, was that I happened to hear through the grapevine about your tremendous success investigating your family history. You know, especially around Thanksgiving time, a lot of us uh, get to spend time with family or think about family But unfortunately, I think especially for for folks who are African-American, when it comes to the idea of researching Black family history, there's this sort of ongoing myth and belief out there that it's impossible to do. So how did you get started with doing genealogical research um, on your family?
4: Well, um, my mother received a call from some distant relative in Texas inviting us to um, her father's or her her grandfather's uh, family reunion. And we had no idea who these people were, and it was more like, okay, is this real? Are we really connected? I didn't know anything about my mother's grandfather, so I just started doing the research.
0: So was it difficult at first, and what was your first step? You know, right
4: now it's really easy. Um, I went through Ancestry.com. And I started typing in names and the little information that I did know from my mom and from my aunts. And I was able to pull up information instantly. Like, the night that I signed up, I found information on my family. And I, found, I also found images and information on my husband's family, too. Wow. It was wow. so super simple now. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, um, would you? how would you then suggest that people get started outside of, you know, did did Was the most helpful thing, you think, talking to your family was the most helpful thing using the service? Was it a combination of things? It's definitely
4: a combination. You definitely need to know names, Um, counties or cities where they lived. have kind of a um, know who their family, like if their siblings or who their children were. Um, this, this certain little keywords and clues that they ask for each person that really helps to narrow down and find out which family member actually belongs to you. But once you get started, once you get started with that information, Ancestry has um, little leaflets that pop up and there are little hints that probably could be related to the person in your family. So they start to give you clues and that helps you go deeper and deeper. So it's just, if you know just an ounce of information, you can still get a full family tree off of it.
0: I'm wondering, too, you told us that great story about um, being contacted sort of out of the blue by some distant relatives in Texas. A lot of times there is that one event that spurs people to get active um, in finding out about their family. Do do you think that there are any other events or something that's going on in your life that kind of spurs you to investigate your roots? Does there have to be that magic moment, that period in your life? And if so, what, what would that have been for you?
4: Well, definitely for me, I am recently married, and my husband and I talk about having children all the time. And it's like building a legacy, and it's information that we want to be able to give our kids so they know where they come from. It's like it's building that pride, this document, this legacy that I can give to my children. So when they grow up and they learn about their family history, they can have all the information that's there, and they can be really proud of it. Just in doing the research myself, I learned about um, my father's side of his family, and we go three or four generations back of owning our own land and having our own working farms. So it was really important, and it was really inspiring for me um, as a budding entrepreneur because I come from a long lineage of self-employed people. It was really inspiring for me, and I hope that, you know, this document that I built for my kids and having everything right there for them, that that will inspire them to continue to be successful and to continue to pursue their dreams. It's all in our blood. It's there for them.
0: So you've mentioned both your mother and your father in sort of your discussions about doing this research, and I'm wondering Uh what has been the response from your larger family in regards to the information that you found?
4: Everyone is very excited and very happy that I am taking on this project. Everyone's always interested in what I've learned. Of course, they don't want to do the work, but <laughs> it's, it's, you know, but they're very helpful in giving me the information that I need to find more information to dig deeper. Um, my father, uh, he comes from Alabama, and I, for some a reason, he doesn't really like to talk about his childhood. He doesn't like to really go back to Alabama in his younger years. Um, He doesn't like to remember that, but this project has really helped him to open up about that and to really start to talk about who his aunts were, who his grandmother was, and I'm starting to learn a lot more about my dad um, through this whole project.
0: And I think he really pointed to something very important. That's something that might be true for a lot of African-American families. And so because of that, There is a lot that we don't learn because of that pain that parents and and ancestors have not wanted to pass on to us. Um, Right. So so I think that's such a great opportunity for for our generation to sort of go back, fetch that, and share that with our families. If you don't ask the questions, it gets lost, and then it makes finding your
4: ancestry very difficult. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my father is one of six, and it's just him and his sister now. So it's only, you know, it's either my dad or my aunt who I'm plugging information from. And no one else really remembers, so I'm having to, you know, reach out to people that I'm finding online to see, like, okay, are we we related? How are we related? What information can you give me? And so that's been successful, too. I've found a couple of fourth and fifth cousins online out of Alabama that have been able to complete my story for me. So.
0: What would you say were some of the most exciting finds from this project thus far, things that you've been particularly excited
5: about?
4: Well, the documents really meant a lot to me, um, because especially the older census records, first of all, they're beautiful. They're all handwritten and able to see the handwriting and the style interested me. And then not only that, on the census records, they say if they could read or write, if they owned land, how large their property was. And so that was very surprising, and it made me very appreciative to go all the way back into the 1800s and know that my great-great-grandfather knew how to read and write and had his own land. Um, You know, we have this whole stigma of what slavery was like, but they were actually educated, and my family actually made it through and, you know, was successful during that time period as well. That was just very inspiring for me.
0: That's so. great. And photographs, were there any images or anything oh, like that? Lots of photographs. I've got a lot of photographs on my
4: mother's side. Um and those I actually had to go offline to find. Um I have another cousin that had started doing ancestry years ago um when I was back in high school like maybe 10, 12 years ago. And she did it the the long way by going to the library and by traveling all over the country to Talk to relatives and find out information. But once I reconnected with her, she was able to give me images of my great grandmother, of my great great grandfather, and they're just beautiful. And come to find out, my great grandfather, like yeah, my great great grandfather, was actually living in San Francisco, and his grave is out here where I am. So it's like a small connection. I had no idea that he lived in California. You know, probably 20 minutes away from my house now.
0: So I want to shift gears just a little bit. It's been wonderful talking to you and and hearing all about your work and your family history. But I got to say now, when I heard this and I thought about all of the things that also keep you busy, you're going to have to help me work this out. On the professional realm, you have a lot going on. Your visual arts coordinator over at the African American Art and Culture Complex in San Francisco so you're mm-hmm. managing there, you're curating, but as you mentioned, you're also an entrepreneur, got your own events company, 29 and Holding, and then you've also got this blog life going, you're also <laughs> dabbling in local television. I was like, what? So I'm wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit about how all of this comes together, your professional passions
4: I can't sit still, so I always have my hands in several pots. But let's see, I'm a, I'm a visual arts coordinator. I'm a curator for the African-American Art and Culture Complex. So basically I'm working with artists, local artists, in, in, mostly in California, and putting together really great exhibitions. We have three gallery floors that I'm responsible for and managing budgets, marketing, PR, all of that stuff. So that's what keeps me busy most. Of the week. Other than that, I come home. I'm, you know, meeting with clients, and on the weekends, I do weddings, coordinate other type of events, fundraisers, cocktail receptions. So I, I do that as well with Twenty Nine and Holding wait wait, 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 wait.
0: So, so I just want I want you to know what you just said. You said on the weekends I do weddings and fundraisers. Wait a minute. So tell me a little bit about Twenty Nine and Holding. If you could tell us a bit more specifically, because you're sort of like, yeah, and then on Fridays um, and Saturdays, I do weddings. So <laughs> I know there's more happening there. So,
4: Well, 29 and Holding, it's a boutique um, event planning company. I'm primarily focused on weddings and wedding-related events. Thank God I'm out of wedding season now, so I'm, I've am slowed all the way down. But during about a month or two ago, I, every single Saturday, I had a different wedding, sometimes Friday and Saturday doing wedding related events I love it it's my passion it's the logistics of behind creating an event and then also it, it's similar to what I do with curating except I'm it's curating an, uh an event it's you know working with various vendors and color palettes and designing and I, I love it so I find the energy to do it <laughs>
0: Yeah, it sounds like you're doing a good job. I know that you were recently featured in Mocha Bride. So it it sounds Mm -hmm. like you're you're keeping things moving along quite well, but you're not done. So tell me a little bit about (laughs) your work in media, online media, as well as television media, and what keeps you busy on that front? Well,
4: sometimes I appear on a local Comcast show called Inside City Limits, and, again, it's arts-related, so everything kind of overlaps for me, which is really good because I continue to foster my passion for the arts and I don't know, it doesn't make it seem like I have five different hats. It just feels like it's all one continuous job. Um, but with Inside City Limits, I go around to um, different galleries, and we interview artists, and we showcase a lot of the big exhibitions flying around in San Francisco and the Bay Area. Um, so I do that from time to time. I have my own blog called The In Crowd. That's, that's my baby. I work very hard, and I play extremely hard. So um, it's just chronicling me being out and about and being social and going to the latest restaurants and lounges and hanging out with my girlfriends, going up to wineries whenever I get a free moment and, you know, wine tasting. It's just all about what's going on and where people need to be in the Bay Area.
0: Okay, so I'm. I think I'm starting to understand right now. I have this vision of you as this this person who. No, this is good. This is good. So, I, it's it's it's. I see you as a person who sees everything as sort of a, a possibility for an artistic experience, for something beautiful to come together. So it seems that right. even in your genealogical research, you're doing that. You're pulling together a beautiful picture that tells a story about your family heritage, you're doing that at the African-American Art and Culture Complex in San Francisco with artists, and then you're also doing that with your own events company. You're doing that when you're communicating with with broader audiences, with your blog, with the television show. Am I getting at it here? Is that kind of...
4: Yeah, you're you're getting there. Okay, Okay, that's good. I will leave. I guess there is... Yeah, I guess there is a method to the madness. Okay. But the bottom line is I can't sit still. <laughs> that's that's really what it is. I have to do it. You know, if I get an idea, I want to make it happen.
0: Now, one more thing, Samara Rivers. I am collecting messages for the president, which I intend to deliver personally uh, via the podcast. Do you have a message for the president?
4: My message to the president is congratulations. Continue to do what you do. Don't get discouraged by the critics. Just continue to do what you are doing and make us proud.
0: Samara Rivers, thank you so much. Thank you. I somehow managed to catch Samara at her home office in Oakland, California. She's been kind enough to share two treasured family photos with us. You can find images of her great-great-grandmother and a great-grandfather, along with related links for all of this month's stories at taralakeshow.com.
1: Uh, we celebrate Christmas, my family and I. Um, does it feel any different? Yeah, I think because of the economy, a lot of people are looking at more um, expenses, and um, I think we're becoming more personal rather than what are we getting. Is you know all about being more together, um, and I think that's due to the financial crisis as well. It's funny because Christmas is next week, and nah, I didn't feel it at all. Um, I think the kids still do, um, but I think the hype of it has came down a lot, um, since last year at least, and I think that's more importantly due to the um, economy.
0: What are your thoughts on health care reform and all the stuff that's been going on in D.C. around the health care bill?
1: Well, it's funny that you asked because I'm a mental health clinician, so um, my job is based off Medicaid. and. You know, we're feeling the cuts pretty, pretty, pretty harsh. Um, a lot of my coworkers have been laid off, um, a, a smaller position in my our company what, that was really a need um, for, for that service it has been dissolved um, and, you know, we we have to look at jobs now because um, the community support is, is being um, taken away. And the unfortunate thing about that is is the clients and the people, um, those people who need help, who need community support, manic depressants, people who are depressed, kids with ADHD, who don't have diagnosis to be institutionalized, but they still need that support, that excess support, won't receive it. And I think the community will suffer because of that. I would love to see the economy... Um, rise and I, I hope that you know we can get it together to where everybody who needs help can get help, not just those with severe conditions. So I really would like to see healthcare do a lot.
6: I think that health care reform is a good idea. I am not um, really involved with the process. I, I listen when I can but it seems that if a lot of people will be insured and if it does not cost a lot more it seemed to be a good idea more people will have health care people could not be turned away for pre existing conditions and so the little that i think i know about it i uh, i like the idea i think it's a good idea
7: well you know i am still confused what what is going on because i don't know the whole picture but normally i want everyone to have health insurance so what Obama is doing, I think it's good, but I don't have a complete picture. So, my personal opinion is everyone should have some insurance. If they need it, they should get it.
0: It's taking too long, I think, personally. Maybe they could do something a little bit quicker, get things moving, everybody be satisfied. So. The first voice you heard was that of Kevin Brown, 26, originally from the state of Virginia. More on our other community voices, Charmaine, Mohammed, and LaVon, respectively, later in the show. I caught up with each of them during a record-breaking snowstorm on December 17th, 2009, at the Northgate Mall in Durham, North Carolina.
6: Rainboxes and roses and whiskers Kittens, bright copper kettles, and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These
7: are a few of my favorite things. And
0: Christmas- I happen to know my last guest, Samara Rivers, through our mutual undergraduate alma mater. Historically Black Florida a and University, FAMU, which was founded in Tallahassee in 1887. 2009 proved to be a somewhat difficult year for HBCUs, or Historically Black Colleges and Universities, as economic woes, along with federal and state government cutbacks, have hit particularly hard. Like many colleges and universities across the country, HBCUs have had to tighten belts, lay off staff and faculty, and manage amidst the most drastic measures. One unexpected story on the front this year came from Mississippi, where that state's governor, Haley Barber, in response to a $700 million budget shortfall, has proposed a merger of two public HBCUs, Alcorn State and Mississippi Valley State, to a third, the larger historically black Jackson State. This move would reduce Mississippi's three public HBCUs to one, part of a controversial plan that, if adopted, would also impact two non-HBCUs, merging Mississippi University for Women with the much larger Mississippi state. In Atlanta, Morris Brown College continued to struggle under the weight of its financial and operational troubles, remaining open as it has for seven years without accreditation and with $30 million in debt. Once an academic home to 3,000 students pursuing 26 majors, the college now serves 120 students and offers only three majors, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thankfully, not all HBCUs have encountered the most severe of these difficulties. Florida A&M University is one of a number of historically black institutions having better fortunes weathering the current storm, but funding and resource support, especially during the current fiscal strain, remain critical. Now, as always, HBCUs need community and alumni support. Young entrepreneur Joey Digital is one of a small group of HBCU alumni who are making a huge difference, coming up with models for giving and alumni support that may just serve as a guide for alumni groups across the country. His given name is Joe Womack III, and the event host and social media consultant founded the events company Digital Guest List while still a student at FAMU. I wanted to spotlight one of Joey's newest ventures, the Young Alumni Movement, which just wrapped up an entire football season of giving back to Florida a and University. All right, Joey Digital, how you doing?
2: Doing okay, man. Just uh, wrapping up uh, an interesting week here and uh, looking forward to the uh, second half of
0: it. You have definitely emerged as one of the leaders of the young alumni uh, movements. In fact, uh, I, I think that you're one of the first persons that I saw uh, coining that term in relationship to HBCU's young alumni uh, movement, uh, young alumni projects. And so I'm wondering what you think the role of, of your project and projects like it um, has been in sort of um, revitalizing the alumni movement in connection to historically black colleges.
2: For our young alumni movement, and when I say our, I, I'm talking about Florida A&M or FAMU, uh, it's really to galvanize a, a huge base of people who we are calling young alumni. We define that as people under the age of 36 who have graduated. Really galvanize them and get them to to give back so our school can have a better product at the end of the day. First and foremost, that's our that's our mission. And just by looking at the facts, and I've been involved with events, uh, especially related to FAMU over the last seven years and been around black colleges all my life uh, and been around other individuals who have raised funds for black colleges since I was a kid. Graduates of historically black colleges do not give back. People blame it on a myriad of reasons, but those are the facts. What I've observed is that When it comes to homecomings, when it comes to classics, especially as a related family with the Atlanta Classic and the Florida Classic, is that young alums will party. I, along with several other individuals about a year ago, said, hey, let's just tap into the existing behavior and try to get some good out of it. We kind of did some things like around the Florida Classic last year, kind of threw out the term young alumni movement, and people loved it. After the Florida Classic last year, I wrote an article. Posted it on Facebook and everyone was a complete agreement. I had about hundred or so comments and um, kind of just took it from there. So I was fortunate enough to have some corporate sponsorships that I could leverage to make sure people did not have to spend money for high quality events. Uh, if you're not going to spend any money, then you have extra money to spend somewhere else. And if you have that, that extra money, should be spent, in my opinion, with the school. Hmm. So that's our model and. Um, it's worked out pretty well so far. I mean, our whole objective for 2000 for the fall 2009 uh, period was just, you know, let's have a good time, let's build some momentum, and I think that's what we've done so far.
0: You talked about the fact that, that your events provide an opportunity for young alumni to come together to participate in the Classy Affair and to not necessarily uh, spend a lot of money on it. But at the same time, and I, I guess this is sort of a leading question, but are there also ways that you can leverage those events, or that you have leveraged those events, to also benefit uh, Florida A&M University in any way?
2: You mean like, for instance, if, if we charge people to get in, and we then donate some of that money back to the school?
0: That's what I'm something I mean. like that. Yes.
2: Well, that that's a model. I don't I don't like it as much as the free model where people we simply ask people for donations. Really, one because honestly, what we mean is free. Mm-hmm. It's that much easier to market, and then you do a, the better job of, of marketing, and, and then it becomes viral. Then the demand honestly increases, but then you get to a point where okay, only so, so many or x number of people can get it, get, can actually get into the event. One way for you to guarantee one way to guarantee you get in is to actually donate. So you're not necessarily forcing someone to donate, but you're really you're strongly encouraging them to. Um and I think people would just feel a little bit better.
0: Okay. I I just I wanna let you know there's there's some rumors going around already, Joey Digital, about uh, some some uh nice donations that have been made to the alumni association on behalf of, of some of the efforts that are coming out of this project.
3: Yeah,
2: we um for the Atlanta classic, we had um ten thousand in, dollars in, in donations and pledges um to the actual family foundation. And for the uh Florida Classic, for the uh, for homecoming, we tended to raise four thousand dollars and we're looking to do the same amount for uh for the Florida classic. Again, there's one thing I I didn't actually get a chance to talk about earlier, but not only are we leveraging a large base of young alums from CMU, we also get to tap into their collective talent based skill set and social graph, meaning just their connection. We're actually seeing results.
0: All right, Joey Digital, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate your taking out the time.
2: You too, man. Appreciate it.
0: Joey spoke to us from Atlanta, Georgia, while he was gearing up for the final flourish of FAMU football events popular with alumni, the 30th Orlando Classic. As if I even have to report, FAMU spanked, crushed, and annihilated Bethune-Cookman, voted 2-6.
6: a kiosk up there, so we celebrate Christmas and, you know, all the major holidays, so to speak. It's okay. It's a little slow. You feel it. But um, I'm a very small business and um, the economy, yeah, we feel a little bit of a pinch, but it's going, okay, I, I can say that. Hopefully next week will be better.
0: What are your thoughts on President Obama uh, receiving the Nobel Peace
6: Prize? Yeah, I think um, it's a good idea. I do realize that he knows that There are things he needs to do. The fact that he did not nominate himself or he's not a part of that process and he was chosen by committee, I think that um, it's fine. It's actually great. Physicists or different prizes they have given out, nobody questioned those prizes. So we should trust that judgment that they're doing the right thing. And I don't think he should be criticized. He was recognized because he did something that they failed deserved such uh, such recognitions. The fuss about it I don't get because it's not his, you know, he
1: didn't choose himself. Obama with the Nobel Peace Prize. First of all, I want to say I'm, I'm definitely glad. I definitely applaud the, the award. That prize represents a level of generosity or a level of power within a person. Not only does he, he touch this multi-race country, he touches other countries as well. And they and they look up to him for that. Not because he's black, but just because it's a change. And I think that change reflects on our country well. And when he speaks, he projects this uplift to give everyone hope. I think other countries will, you know, appreciate what we have going on over here, rather than just looking at us as a dominant country. But it's awful that it's two-sided. He shouldn't have got it. I don't think he should have received it. But that's the world we live in.
0: It's a great thing. I mean, of course, it's Obama. I'm an Obama fan. So
7: Obama, he's done a lot of great things as far as promoting change, getting things going. I think it was too early to tell. You know, they jumped ahead of gun, but I think he deserves, but he has to show something for it. I mean, I know he's changing the world bit by bit, but I think they just jumped the horse.
0: Leading there was Charmaine Patel, 43, originally from Liberia, West Africa.
7: shoes with luck.
5: To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now, that's way,
0: that's way, that's way. Oh. Publisher and editor Lisa C. Moore is founder of the independently owned Redbone Press, which for twelve years has published books by and about black lesbian women and gay men. She's also the board president of Fire and Ink, an organization that supports and advocates the work of African descended LGBT writers and sponsors a writers' festival by the same name. I tracked Lisa down in October 2009 during the most recent incarnation of that historic festival in Austin, Texas, to talk about the significance of Fire and Ink and the new 2009 edition of her press's first book, Does Your Mama Know?, an anthology of black lesbian coming out stories. You know, I I should be really honest and say that I dragged Lisa out of the hallway and into the corner of an almost empty banquet room in order to get this interview, you know, just FYI. So could you tell me a little bit about the history of Fire and
7: Ink?
5: Okay. Fire and Ink, the organization, began as a loose group of seven individuals that wanted to have a conference of our own. We had been to different writers' events, festivals, and conferences where we had found that the... The content that was geared towards black people was usually juxtaposed at the same time frames. And so we found ourselves split off trying to, you know, well, if you go to this workshop, I'll go to that panel and we can compare notes. And we finally realized there's enough of us out there that we could have our own writer's conference. And so we decided to do that. And in 2002, we had the first one at the University of Illinois, Chicago. That was uh, the inaugural year, if you will. But at the same time, 10 days before that happened, I had a fire. Uh, and it was a successful conference in that we had about 135, maybe 140 people that attended. Uh, so it was good. And the feedback was tremendous that we had to do it again. Since then, I have rebuilt personally. Um, we have become an official 501c3 with a fundraising board. We had a mini festival in 2005, just a one, one and a half days worth of events in Austin, Texas. And now here in 2009, we're having Fire and Ink Three Cotillion. So what makes Fire and Ink unique? What, and, and what need does it fill? Everybody here is focused on the content being Black LGBTQ literature. The people here can be black, white, Latino, Asian. We have all manner of people here, but we are here to discuss black LGBTQ literature um, and performance and film. I mean, it's turning into something more than just a written word. But that's there's I don't can't think of another organization that does that. And in the in the process, we're also we're using arts as um as a as a way to achieve social justice. I mean we realize that and we believe that there is no social justice without the arts. You just told me something really rich and interesting about the the
0: sort of changes in the conference and the um, evolution of the conference towards something that more holistically embraces artistic expression. Is there anything else that you think folks ought to know about the conference?
5: The first year we the organizers picked the Panels. We picked the content that we wanted and we we had these dream panels and workshops and we asked people to do that. Uh, For Cotillion, we solicited proposals and we chose among this huge, this massive proposals and that's what we have this year is these are the people that provided their own panelists. And we got grants this time, (laughs) so that was extremely helpful. Another thing that's different is that we have um, African media makers, LGBT African media makers panel. We have Caribbean LGBTQ writers, so it's more of a diasporic event.
0: There's a new edition of Does Your Mama Know this year. Mm -hmm. Why now? Why now for a new edition of Does Your Mama Know?
5: I put out a new edition because I sold out of everything I had and people still wanted copies. And I I toyed with the idea of doing a 10th anniversary edition, but I didn't have the money to redo it then. So 12 years later, there's a new edition with 17 new authors.
0: What then would you say that this collection has to offer? What does the anthology have to offer for pandemic audiences, African-American audiences, quote-unquote mainstream readers?
5: You know, its original intent was uh, for black lesbians coming out to find some solace and some, you know, recognition that there's other people like them out there. And um, for academic audiences, it's like this intervention in the canon of what coming out literature is. There's actual literature for black people. It's not all about white lesbians.
0: Are there pieces or, or a piece that you're particularly excited about?
5: That's like asking somebody to choose their favorite child. I a... hate that question. <laughs> <laughs> They're all notable. I could tell you stories about each one of them. They really are like children. They really are. Everything's different and unique, and they, they bring their own qualities. So, uh, I, I, all of them are my favorites. Mm-hmm.
0: And then, anything generally that you wanted to say?
5: Thank you for your support. Thank you for the recognition of my work and by Redbone Press books. Because in doing so, you're keeping the press alive and thriving.
0: In Austin, Texas, that was Lisa C. Moore, founder and editor at Redbone Press.
7: know you better This Christmas And as we trim the tree How much fun it's gonna be together This Christmas The fireside's blazing bright We're caroling through the night And this Christmas Special Christmas for me.
0: Back in North Carolina, I met up with one of the 17 new contributors appearing in Does Your Mama Know. Alexis Pauline Gums, a black feminist scholar and media activist wrapping up her PhD in English at Duke University. So I'm here with Alexis Pauline Gums. As you know, I had an opportunity to talk to Lisa. One of the things that she was most excited about was some of the newer contributors that she was able to bring forward in this edition. So I'm really glad to have the opportunity to sort of talk to you about your participation in the anthology. Could you talk to us a little bit about the piece and your process and that? It's interesting because the piece is, it talks
8: about already and all along how I was coming out to everyone in my life before I necessarily had consciousness of myself as a queer person or was in love with anyone at all you know just kind of that process of queering life itself from a really young age so it starts with you know me telling my mom I want to marry Aretha Franklin and me also thinking that marriage meant somebody that Aretha Franklin would stand in my home and sing for me at all times like my idea of marriage being something very different From what it actually is and it's interesting to me because it it's against the coming of age narrative so it's like me writing about these different moments where i'm not growing up properly but where i'm also developing a critique of what i'm supposed to grow into i think the piece is interesting because it foreshadows who i am but i never had an opportunity to really think about and track those moments until lisa asked me to write the piece It's interesting because it could allow someone else to think about the moments in their own life where they are preparing the world and their family for who they are before they even have language for it.
0: There was a moment of decision in sort of participating in the anthology. Why did you decide to say yes when Lisa asked? I mean,
8: first and foremost, I always say yes to Lisa.
0: (laughs) You know, there are some
8: people who you just, you admire them so much, you trust so fully that they have your best interest at heart that I can't really imagine anything that Lisa would ask that I would say no. I was intimidated. I mean, this is like the only black lesbian coming out anthology. The women who are in the anthology are like heroes of my. I mean, Alexis DeVoe is somebody who is, I write about in my dissertation, right? So, so they're, the, way, the place where I hold those original contributors is like, you know, idols. I don't think of myself as on their level. So, even though, of course, I was gonna say yes to Lisa, there also was a part of me that wanted to be like, Lisa, do you know this is me that you call? (laughs) You know, like, I'm just Alexis, and like, this is the anthology that makes possible (laughs) the world that I live in, you know? It was a scary thing for me. It was an act of believing in myself. And it was also an act of understanding that just the way that those women who I admired so much made it possible for me to be the person that I am, I have an accountability to tell my story in a way that lets other people see themselves, find themselves, learn about something that they didn't know. Lisa may have mentioned this, but I I know some of the story of why she created the anthology. My
5: original inspiration for Does Your Mama Know was, it was back in 1997. Well, the book came out in 97, so it had to have been 95 that, um, my sister was in school, and this one young woman followed her home, basically because she had seen for her. It was about a younger woman who was looking to her for advice. Lesbian's coming out, and I started looking on my shelves, and couldn't find one, even though I just I just knew in the back of my mind there had to have been one by that point, and there wasn't. So I thought, well, I should do this, um, and I did. I put together, I I found works that had already been printed in journals and other anthologies, and it's solicited part of a series of decisions
8: and labors of love that women and generations before me have taken on specifically knowing that there were people who would come afterwards who would need these words. So yeah, I had the privilege of growing up in a world where I didn't have to think of myself as making myself from scratch. I just, I don't, I don't ever get over my gratitude for that. And I know that it's not. um, In no sense does that mean it's easier to come out or to be queer, especially to be queer and black in the society we live in today. So I I know that that has to be an accountability of my own work.
0: I joined Alexis at a colorfully decorated kitchen table in Durham, North Carolina.
7: Well, so since I'm a Muslim, I celebrate what is called Eid. Um, it's where we celebrate it at the end of month of fasting, and usually it's the same for me. But this year it's been different because I'm in traveling. So it's normally a, you get you have to pray, and then you get to spend time with friends and family and that kind of stuff. Traveling it's a little bit hard when you're fasting. It's you have to keep up, but then it's fun too. I get to meet a lot of people.
0: Do you have any thoughts on the Tiger Woods controversy?
7: Everyone says he's cheating, but you know normally what he did is not right. I understand his wife divorcing him and leaving him with the kids. What he did is not morally right, so he should repent. That's what I think. He should repent and he should ask for forgiveness and move on, but he has done a lot of damage, so personally I think you know, just ask for forgiveness. Everybody makes mistakes. You should forgive him as far as... You're not really knowing him, but his personal
0: life needs to stay personal, let him take care of it with his family, keep moving, because he's a golfer. He's not perfect, so, yeah.
6: Because I'm a little older, I think that um, it should be a personal issue, apart from the fact everybody has values, but I don't want to judge. I'm a woman, and I kind of almost empathize with the wife. I think it's... You know, it's sad for her. It's a difficult thing to deal with. But in the end, she's going to have to deal with her life and the choices she has made and what's good for her family and children. And he has to decide what is important you know if this is going to be his life chasing women then he needs to decide that's what he wants to do or if he's going to prioritize his family or if he needs help but it's sad that we put these people on better slows and then after things happen and all of a sudden the whole world turns away they have problems so they need to deal with it I wish their family the best
1: ah Tiger Woods um you might have to edit this last one (laughs) I think Tiger Woods was an idiot for that. Now, every man has, every person has their skeletons, not even men, women too. However, when you look behind closed doors, it's it's amazing what you find. It's unfortunate that before this incident, he was looked at as an outstanding father, husband, golfer, um, and a lot of people put him on a pedestal as far as being a uh, role model for kids, role model for young golfers. He's a spokesman for Gatorade, Nike, and, and to see him fall—and I have to say fall—because he fell to the joys of life. But at the same time, it was a, it was a very ignorant move. Now, me being a man, I feel that if he wouldn't have got caught, nobody would have been saying anything about it. But the fact that he got caught says a lot. I wouldn't want I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone's family. But you you reap what you sow no matter who you are. And this goes to show that celebrities are people, too. And, you know, these people, they, they have skeletons in their closet. And Tiger Woods had plenty of them. <laughs>
7: yeah, yeah.
0: Starting us off was Muhammad Ali, who calls Chicago home. He's 25. <laughs> ¶¶
7: It's cool outside. I've got to go away. Bet it's cool out there. This evening has been been hoping that you drop in. So very nice. I'll hold your hand. They're just like my ice. mother will start to. Beautiful, worry. Her, what's your hurry? And father will be pacing. Listen to that fireplace. So really I better skip it for please don't worry.
0: Chike Agbunagafor is a young scholar in the MD PhD program at Yale University. Infectious diseases, epidemiology, and ensuring equitable health policies are topics that occupy most of his time. But during the spring and summer of 2009, Chike and many of his classmates took time out to raise awareness in a massive campaign to find a bone marrow match for fellow Yale medical student, 26-year-old Natasha Collins, who was battling leukemia. Chike and I had a hopeful discussion about Natasha's bright legacy— and about what all of us can do to help. She can't want to go for it. Hello there. <laughs> How are you?
3: <laughs> I'm quite well. And yourself?
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you. Welcome to the Tara Lake uh, show. The Terra Lake show was the Tara Lake podcast. I'm, I'm evolving.
3: Okay.
0: So it's, it's all the Tara right. Lake show
3: now. Moving up, moving up. Well, thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for making the time. I know you're very busy right now. Um, And I'm actually going to ask you a little bit about that, but... You know, part of the, the focus of the show this time around is is the concept of moving into the holidays um, and really thinking about ourselves as part of a, a broader community. You were definitely the first person who um, who brought to my attention and brought to the attention of a, of a lot of our community, I guess, on Facebook and elsewhere, the story of Natasha Collins um, and mm-hmm. her experience while she was living to find assistance for uh, her battle with cancer. And I want to know if you can tell us a little bit about Natasha Collins and and her legacy now that she has passed on.
3: Um, Sure, I'd be happy to, and uh, thank you for inviting me to talk about that. It's a very important issue, and uh, I think a lot of people, um, we've been touched by just kind of a lot, how many people from around the country have uh, written written people, written friends of Natasha and her family, and communicated uh, how much her story inspired them. So Natasha was a, a first-year medical student at Yale School of Medicine uh, who recently passed away from a, a rare form of leukemia, and uh, she, this was actually her second uh, battle with leukemia. I knew Natasha several years ago because I was one of the students who tried to recruit her to come here. remember she came to a recruitment weekend here, and she was perfectly fine then, and it was right around that time that she had been first diagnosed with uh, leukemia, and um, she had to take time off to to, to uh, engage in her treatment regimen. So she took, a, I think it was a couple of years off before she came And I remember when I saw her, uh, this is at this, this, is this time last year, actually. I remember I saw her for the first time. She had just entered, and I was really, really excited. So I go, oh, wow, you know, it looks like she had, she had beaten leukemia, and she was kind of just a member of her class, and she looked perfectly healthy and happy. Um, it was around when it was in the winter that we all got an email from a classmate of hers, who uh, were, was her best friend, who had mentioned that uh, she she actually uh, was at, uh, had a relapse of uh, the, you know, the cancer came back, and that they'd kind of be engaging in uh, some some activities to to try and find her a donor. Um, Natasha also wrote the class and kind of described just kind of what she was feeling like. It was very very it was quite amazing.
5: I think she was fully aware
3: of the gravity of her situation, uh, but she was upbeat. She was basically just telling everyone to be forgiving and. And to you know, always, always kind of look, to, uh, look to the positive. So from that moment on, we kind of lost, uh, with her, with her family and her, and her classmates, uh, a national kind of search for a donor.
0: Sorry. I, I want to, um, but before we move on, I want to make it really clear to folks, um, this is, the, Natasha, at this point, had graduated from Cornell. She had been at Cornell yeah. as an undergraduate student. Um, she's at Yale as a first-year medical student. And that also just gives us, um, gives us an idea of the fact that, that this is a young lady who's an extraordinary young lady, very hardworking, and at this point had already been managing her illness and then takes this sort of very courageous step to communicate to her classmates and to the community at Yale ab- about what was happening with her illness. And I'm, I appreciate the fact that you're going to explain a bit more about what further complicated this, this issue for Natasha.
3: Sure. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for putting in those details. Um, so what made the issue difficult for Natasha is that she's of mixed race. Her, her father is African-American and her mother is Irish-American. And so, generally speaking, there are, there are 15 million uh, there are 15 million people who are in what we call various bone marrow registries across the country and basically that's not so much that we have actual we have 15 million samples of bone marrow but we have bone marrow registries which means people oftentimes you donate kind of, it's very very easy you can kind of just take a cheek swab and from your cells we can tell you look for something called your hla type and it basically just kind of tells you the type of tissue that you have and if you're going to be an appropriate match with someone else. And so to have a proper match with someone, um, particularly for blood or for blood, bone marrow, you need to have as close as possible the same HLA typing. For minority groups in general and for African Americans and for persons of mixed racial descent, um, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a dearth of uh, kind of donors that are in the various bone marrow registries. And so it's very, very difficult to find a match. And so mm-hmm. there was a nationwide effort launched to try and find Natasha match. Something to understand is that African Americans in general are a very mixed race group. Um, so I think African Americans as a whole are very, very underrepresented in these registries. And so it really was kind of a nationwide effort to get people in. In Natasha's case, they found a match. Uh, it was a from Germany. They found a match. However, the match wasn't perfect. And that, unfortunately, is where the hard work begins in some ways because there's the process of actually transferring the stem cells from the donor into the, uh, the host, which is, uh, which is Natasha in this case, and there's complications that happen there. There's something that's called graft-versus-host disease whereby you have immune cells from a donor that can actually attack the tissue of the host that they're transplanting, and that happens in every kind of organ transplant, kidney, liver, etc. cetera, um, and what happened in Natasha's case is she had complications from the actual uh, process of uh, of t- transplanting bone marrow uh stem mm. cells. And then that's what she that's what eventually she succumbed uh, to, which was in which was in August of this year, uh two thousand and nine. So she she passed away uh, peacefully and uh it, 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 they report to us and, and she was upbeat at the time of it and her family was here and uh since then we've continued the effort. Her family has started a institute called Natasha's Place which they hope will be a, a research institute, number one. And number two, it'll be a um, it'll be a uh, umbilical cord blood bank. Now, just to kind of give you the different kind of ways people can donate, so one way to kind of be a donor is to get stem cells directly from bone marrow, okay? That's kind of one of the classic ways. The second one is to kind of get blood stem cells that are kind of circulating through your bloodstream. That's the easiest one. The second one is the easiest one, and the one is probably the first one. Getting them directly from bone marrow is a little bit more invasive. And the third way... It's actually in theory. When you're born as a baby, you have stem cells that kind of can be a perfect match either for you later in life or for a family member later in life. So what some people do, are doing now is with babies when they're born, right, you know, right after birth, they're getting some of these cells frozen and stored in a kind of cryo bank for use potentially later in life. It's easier. The matching is a lot better and uh, it's a lot less invasive, you have a lot less worry about graft or host disease, and so the potential for that is, uh, is, is would be better for someone like Natasha.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about, first, where we can hear more about Natasha's place, and then also mm-hmm. what types of resources is it going to take for, um, for the Collins family to sort of get this off the ground?
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, Yes. very good question. So um, I can point you towards a website. Um, that's probably the first place you could uh, look, and that's where they have everything from the kind of news articles about the issue. And I think the great thing about Natasha's Place is that it it focuses specifically on persons of mixed heritage. It's really trying to, you know, popularize that issue because they are what you know they are dramatically missed, uh, underrepresented in these registries. So the website is place dot org. One word. And as far as what what uh, what it's going to take. Yes, it's going to really, really take similar to this. It's kind of popularizing the issue, making minority and mixed race individuals aware of the issue, making young parents aware of the issue, such that they can kind of store umbilical cord blood, uh, stem cells from near the time the baby is born, so that this can be can being stored in a, in a cryo bank, uh, is what they have. So the family has actually a it's a it's a nonprofit now that actually works on storing. These these blood samples, these uh, stem cell samples. So it really would be a popularizing uh, effort. That's what a lot of the funding would be towards. Also, more money can be can go towards purchasing more room in the cryobanks, so that more people can store their samples there.
0: Okay. And if folks wanted to make donations, they could do that at the website, because the first thing I'm thinking they is, matter. wow, this this can't be something that's inexpensive. And I'm imagining that there's just a great deal of um, not just expense, but also certain types of resources, even uh, sort of intellectual and skills resources that has to go into the yes. work that this family's taken on. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yes, yes, you're right. And the good news is that I mean the, the bank is already up and running. Okay. So um people can make yeah, people can already yes, and it it is going to take funds to maintain this kind of thing. But what's nice about uh, Natasha's place is that it it has a scientific arm which is the actual storing of cord blood, um and it also is advocacy. And I think that's and I think that's the key. If you go to the website, there's a petition. It's titled Uh Mixed Heritage Patients Deserve a Better Chance and you can basically sign it to encourage lawmakers to further encourage political efforts to make it easy for people to donate kind of cord blood uh to, from their from, from babies uh right after birth. And just to let everyone know, when you're donating, this is just umbilical cord blood. This is not you're not actually making you're not taking anything from the baby. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. kind of tissue that's being discarded anyway. But in them is is the potential kind of the stem cells that can grow to be actual blood cells and can be donated to a baby later in life, to an adult later in life. So yeah, the funding goes for various things, but again, there's there's multiple ways that people can contribute. You can assist in the advocacy efforts, etc., and all of this is right on the website.
0: And again, there's a there's a particular need for people of color, people of color who are mixed race, to get mm-hmm. involved and to boost those numbers, so that people like Natasha Collins have a greater opportunity of finding a match. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much for that. If you'd like to find links to Natasha's place and bone marrow registries. Please visit our website at TaraLakesShow.com.